You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, For those of you staying in here with us, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you need a Bible to follow along, you can go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow along with us. You'll want to do that. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app just because if you log in and you go to the events, you'll find our notes in there. There's the stuff that's up here on the screen, but there's also a little bit more that you can interact with. It's a great way to interact with the sermon as we're going through it. So we are currently in a series where we are looking at the parables of Jesus. One third of all of the teachings that we have in the Bible from Jesus are in the form of parables, which are short stories and illustrations which Jesus told in order to illustrate and teach important spiritual truths. And so each week we're looking at one or two of these parables and we're considering what they mean and how they relate to us and how we live today. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. And we ask that as we consider it, as we break it down, Lord, that you would really give us insight into what it means, what it meant then, and what it means for us today. Lord, we pray that your word would as we hear it, as we read it, as we study it today, Lord, that it would touch our hearts, that it would transform our minds, and Lord, that you would do a work in our lives through it. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin by asking you, how many of you have ever been in debt before? Whether it's 
$20 that you borrowed from a friend or whether it's an auto loan that you've taken out or you've maybe purchased a home or you've taken out a business loan, I think most of us can understand or we can comprehend what it means to be in debt. The average American household, by the way, has $16,700 in credit card debt. That's aside from cars and homes. So being in debt is uh, not something that is uncommon to people in our culture. It's very familiar. But not only that, it's not just a recent thing that people started being in debt. This has been something that people have done ever since there's been money and history. And so in Jesus' day, people understood what it meant to be in debt too. And Jesus told two different parables in which he talked about debt. Today, we're going to look at those two parables. The first one is the one we just read in Luke chapter 7. The second one is found in Matthew chapter 18. And both of these parables, which talk about debt, both of them are about forgiveness and, and about this, how God forgives us. And the point of these parables is to say this, to the degree that you understand the forgiveness that God offers you in Jesus, to the degree that you understand that, your life will be changed and transformed. First of all, in regard to how you relate to God, but also, secondly, in regard to how you relate to other people. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The title of today's message is The Two Debtors. And here's what we're going to see in these two parables, just an outline for you who like outlines. First of all, we're going to talk about the diagnosis, the diagnosis. Second thing we're going to see is two reactions to Jesus, two different reactions to Jesus. And thirdly, we're going to talk about some surprising facts about forgiveness. So some surprising facts about forgiveness. Let's begin by talking about the diagnosis and and this story that we just read here in Luke chapter 7. In Jesus' time, in Jewish society, there was no one who was more highly respected and regarded than the Pharisees. They were kind of the rock stars of Judaism. If you were at the airport and you saw a Pharisee, you would go over and ask him to sign your uh, Torah or your dreidel or whatever you had on you. You would want to get a picture with the Pharisee because Pharisees were an elite group and they were a very exclusive group. There were a limited number of Pharisees, only a couple thousand in number. So to be numbered among the Pharisees was a big deal. They were highly regarded and respected. They were known as, the nickname for them was, the separated ones. And their goal was to live 100% biblically. 100%, no reservations, no cutting any corners whatsoever. And they believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God and they wanted to live according to it in every way. Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? And yet, Jesus was constantly clashing with the Pharisees. And here's why, because in their zeal, they often missed the heart of God, and they often missed it completely. And in turn, they often misrepresented the heart of God to other people, because you see, at this time, a lot of people looked to the Pharisees and the other religious leaders for direction and instruction because many people couldn't read, and so they were dependent on the religious leaders to tell them what God said and what God's word said, and so They were dependent on that, but here's the problem. Rather than teaching people about God's love and God's grace, instead, the Pharisees placed heavy burdens on the people. And they said, you know, if you're not as committed as we are, then God is disappointed with you and he doesn't really want anything to do with you. And this made Jesus upset that they said this. This is why he clashed with them. 
And the Pharisees would do things sometimes, you know, to draw attention to themselves so that people would notice how spiritual they were, how committed they were, how dedicated they were. And Jesus would say, you know, there's nothing spiritual about putting on a show to bring attention to yourself and not to God. There's nothing spiritual about that. Rather, you know, what you're doing is is you're not actually even drawing people to God. You're actually pushing people away from God. I don't know if you've met people like that before. Maybe you've even been that person before at some point in your life. So zealous, so zealous for the truth, so zealous for what you believe that you actually, in effect, push people away from God rather than drawing them to God. Sometimes it's religious people who turn other people away from God the most. And that's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. And I pray that that's never the case of any of us in here. But that's why Jesus was so critical of the Pharisees because even though they believed the Bible, even though they were so committed Here was the problem. They didn't understand the gospel. They didn't understand the gospel, that message that is going throughout the Bible, that core message of the the entire Bible from beginning to end. You see, what the Pharisees thought and what the Pharisees taught was that a relationship with God is all about the things that you have to do in order for God to accept you. But the gospel, by the way, the word gospel, it just means good news. The good news is that God has acted on your behalf in order to save you because you couldn't do it. Salvation is not something you can earn. Salvation is not something you do earn. Salvation is something that God does for us and we receive it as a gift. Now, the Pharisees, they didn't get that. And they, what they taught people was actually the opposite of the gospel. And that's why Jesus had such an issue with them. He clashed with them so much. And because Jesus was critical of the Pharisees, as a result of that, many of the Pharisees didn't like Jesus and they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Uh, But we have to say this, there were some exceptions. It's not that all the Pharisees were against Jesus. There were some uh, who, like, for example, Nicodemus is somebody we read about in the Gospel of John, a Pharisee who became a follower of Jesus. Here in Luke chapter 7, we read about another one, a Pharisee named Simon, who was open to Jesus. Simon invited Jesus over to his house for dinner. Now let me just say, that was a huge thing, a huge gesture. For someone in that culture to invite someone else over to their house to have a meal was about the most intimate thing that you could do in that culture with another person. But see, here's the thing with Simon. Whereas Nicodemus, for example, when Nicodemus wanted to start meeting with Jesus, he wanted to meet him in secret so that no one else would see it. Simon goes one step beyond that. He says, I don't want to meet with Jesus in secret. I'll invite him over to my house publicly. So I I want you to see this. What Simon is doing here, he's showing incredible kindness to Jesus. He's showing incredible openness to Jesus, which was uncommon because he was a Pharisee. So we see that Simon's a a pretty great guy, actually, you know, inviting Jesus over, showing him this kind of kindness, having him over for a meal. He's showing incredible kindness and incredible openness, especially in this culture. Now, in that culture and in that time, when you ate a meal, right, don't picture it like how you eat a meal probably at your home where you sit around a table and you sit at chairs and your feet are under the table as you sit in the chair. So they didn't use chairs like we use chairs. What they would do is they would have low tables on the floor and they would recline either on mats or on a couch or something like that, uh, but very close to the floor. So they would recline and they would... Um, you know, you wouldn't want your feet to be anywhere near the food. And so you would recline with your feet away from the table and you would kind of lean, uh, prop yourself up with your left hand and you would eat with your right hand. 
So that's what you need to picture as, uh, as you're thinking about these people eating dinner together. So Simon and Jesus, and we read that there were a few other people there, they're sharing this meal together, and in walks this woman. And she comes up to Jesus' feet, which of course are, are stretched out behind him, away from the table, and she begins weeping, and she pours perfume on his feet, and she's wiping them with her hair. Now this woman was a sinner. She was a streetwalker. She was a prostitute. And Simon says, well, this Jesus guy is saying that he's divine, but if he really was divine, then he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would tell her to knock it off and not touch him and to get out of this room. I want you to try and put yourself in this situation. I mean, imagine that you're at a restaurant, say for, for a business meeting, or say you're, you're at a restaurant on a weekend with some friends, and a street person comes in, pretty haggard looking, pretty rough looking, and gets down on her knees next to a man and begins crying and then starts kissing his feet. Do you think that would be awkward at all? It'd be absolutely, completely awkward. Imagine the stares. Imagine the laughter. Imagine the disapproving looks. Imagine the staff running over to take this woman and escort her out. You know, if something like this was awkward in our day, I want you to understand, it was incredibly awkward. It was incredibly uncomfortable in that day as well. And Jesus looks over and he sees that here's Simon, the host, and Simon is disapproving of what's happening. He's disapproving of the fact that Jesus is allowing this to happen and that he's allowing this to go on. And Jesus sees Simon's disapproving look and Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I want to tell you a story. Simon says, okay, go ahead. And Jesus says, there were two people and they both owed money to the same money lender. They owed different amounts. The one owed 10 times more than the other. But here's the thing, neither of them were able to pay their debt. And in those days, if you owed a debt and you couldn't pay it back, then you would be put in debtor's prison, which was a terrible fate. They've actually made debtor's prisons against the law in most countries of the world today because they're considered so inhumane. Because here's why. When you end up in a debtor's prison, you have to stay there until you can pay your debt off. But when you're in prison, how are you going to pay off your debt? How are you going to make money to pay off your debt? You can't. So you're basically just locked in prison forever with no way to get out unless someone comes and pays your debt on your behalf. And that's why debtors' prisons have been outlawed and they're considered inhumane. But the point of this story is this. Even though the one person owed 10 times more than the other person, neither of them had the ability to pay back their debt. Which means this. Even though one of them owes more than the other, they're both going to have the same fate. They're both going to end up in the same place, locked up forever with no way to get out. You see, in the parable... The lender is God, and the debt speaks of sin, the areas of our lives where we've fallen short of God's standard or where we've done things that are wrong. The woman's debt is 500. The man's debt is 50. He's lived a moral life. She's lived an immoral life. But do you see the incredible thing that Jesus is saying here about sin and about our diagnosis, our condition? What he's saying is this, whether you, your debt is a lot or a little, in, at the end of the day, you're in the same boat before God. His debt may be less than her debt, but at the end of the day, they both have a debt and neither of them can pay it. And because they can't pay it, they face the exact same fate, even though he owes less than she does in the debt, right? They're going to end up in the same place. They have the exact same fate. Think about how surprising this would be for a person like Simon to hear that he, an upstanding moral person who has been trying to live his life 100% correctly, 
at the end of the day, he's in the same boat spiritually as this woman who has lived a very immoral life. And her only hope to be saved is the same as his only hope to be saved. He needs, in other words, he needs God's grace and forgiveness just as much as she does. Because see, the way that many of us tend to think is, you know, okay, I'm not perfect, right? None of us are perfect, but hey, there are a lot worse people out there, right? There are a lot of people, I'm not that bad, especially, you know, I could give you a list of people who are worse than me, right? Like, I'm not that bad compared to some other people that I know of or some other people out there. But the point of this parable is this, whether your debt is five or five million, the point is you owe a debt and you can't pay it. And because you can't pay it, you have the same fate as the person who has 10 times more debt than you do. You see, maybe there's someone out there who's 10 times worse of a person than you are. Maybe you're a million times better of a person than somebody else you know. It doesn't change the fact that you have a debt before God and you can't pay it. You see, some of us have more debt than others, but we all have debt. That's the point. None of us are able to pay it. That's the diagnosis. The Bible says this to us. It tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It's kind of like this. If there, were, if there was a person who was murdered and, and they were murdered with just a tiny little dagger, right? And it made an incision that was so small you could barely see it and it was just so precise, went right into their heart and killed the person. And then you had another person who was murdered and they got murdered with a machine gun, right? Like Rambo style, just bullets, just ripping it to shreds. There's nothing left. Answer me this. Which one of them is more dead? they're both dead. That's the point. At the end of the day, one's not more dead than the other. They're, they're both dead. You can't be more or less dead. And that's the point. That's how it works with this debt that we have before God. But that also means that there's only one hope. The same hope for the woman is the only hope for the man as well to save us from this terrible situation, this terrible fate. And that solution, that hope that we have is forgiveness. For God to forgive our debt. And this is the good news of the gospel that in Jesus, God offers forgiveness of your sins. The question is, will you embrace this? Will you accept this gift? Will you receive this gift? Interesting thing happened in American history. In 1829, there was a man named George Wilson. He was convicted in Pennsylvania of robbing the mail and threatening the life of the mail carrier. And for this crime, he was sentenced to be hanged. Well, fortunately for George Wilson, the president of the United States, who at that time was Andrew Jackson, granted him a presidential pardon. Oddly, though, and this is the only time it's ever happened in, in U.S. history, George Wilson refused the pardon. And the government wasn't sure what to do. What do they do with this man? I mean, do you still execute a man even though the president has pardoned him? But he refused the pardon, so what do you do? And so the case actually ended up going before the Supreme Court. And there's a Supreme Court justice, his name was John Marshall, and he issued a ruling, and this is a quote from the ruling. It says this, A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it upon him. So here's what happened. George Wilson, this man who received a presidential pardon, he rejected that pardon, and against the will of the President of the United States, he was hanged because he refused to accept the redemption that was offered to him. 
And here's how that relates to us. God has extended an offer of forgiveness and salvation to you. The question is, will you accept it or will you refuse it? Now, you might wonder, who in their right mind would do something like that man did in that case of George Wilson? I mean, who in their right mind would refuse a pardon like that? And yet many people do. Many people do because maybe like Simon, the Pharisee, they are under the impression that they don't need it because they're better than other people out there who are a lot worse than them. But I want you to understand the point of this parable is this. Jesus is making it clear. No matter how big or how small, each and every one of us has a debt before God and we have no means of paying that debt. And our only hope is that Jesus Christ has died for us in order to save us by taking our sins upon himself to pay the price for them so that we can be forgiven. Now that brings us to the second point here in this story, which is two reactions to Jesus, two reactions to Jesus. As Jesus tells this parable, after he gets done with the parable, he asks Simon a question. He says, Simon, which of the two people in that story do you think would be more full of love and joy and appreciation and thankfulness towards the lender who forgave their debt? The one who was forgiven more or the one who was forgiven less? And Simon thinks about it and he says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more would be more thankful and full of love and joy and, and gratitude. And Jesus says, exactly. And Jesus tells Simon, Simon, I came to your house and you've been nice to me. But this woman gushed over me. I mean, the way that she responded to me was different than, I mean, you were nice to me, Simon, but this woman has gushed over me. And you can imagine Simon hearing this and thinking, hey, wait a second. I mean, I've done more than any other Pharisee has ever done for you, Jesus. I invited you into my house. That's a big deal. I, I served you dinner. Well, what do you expect from me? You expect me to fall down at your feet and worship you and gush over you? And Jesus says, actually, yes. Actually, yes, that is what I expect. In fact, he says, the only reason why you aren't falling at my feet like this woman did, the only reason you aren't worshiping me and gushing over me like this woman did is because she understands something, Simon, that you don't understand yet. And if you did understand this thing that she does understand, you would react the same way that she reacted. Here are these two people. They both hear Jesus' message of God's love shown for them in that God offers forgiveness. God provides forgiveness of their sins. But the way that they react to that message is completely different. The one of them reacts with an eruption of love and joy and, and her life is transformed. The other one is cold and detached and unaffected by this message. Why is that? Have you ever noticed that? That sometimes people can hear the same message, maybe even the message of the gospel. Some people seem completely unaffected by it. And other people, their life is transformed by it. Why is that? Well, the difference, according to Jesus, is that Simon doesn't understand just how much he needs God's grace and forgiveness, whereas the woman does. You see, here's the thing. Unless you understand the reality of your sin, you won't be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. I want to say that again. Unless you understand the reality of your sin, you won't be thrilled and amazed by the grace of God. Simon is treating Jesus as he would treat anybody else. He's treating him as an equal. He's treating him as a peer, but not this woman. She bows before him. She gives him preeminence. And she does something that's very significant, actually. It says that she takes her hair down and she takes out an alabaster flask of perfume and pours it on his feet. Now, most likely, this flask was something that this woman would have worn around her neck. It was 
on a necklace and it was probably a tool of her trade, so to say. It was part of her allure as a prostitute. She would use it as part of her job. It was a tool of the trade. And taking her hair down, understand this is a Middle Eastern culture. In the Middle Eastern cultures to this day, whether they're Muslim or Jewish, both of them, traditionally women are expected to cover their hair. And a woman's hair, from the time she reaches adulthood on, a woman's hair is to be reserved only for the eyes of her husband. In fact, in Jesus' time, if a married woman took her hair down in public, that was considered grounds for divorce. Because the only women who took their hair down in public were prostitutes. Again, this was part of the allure, both the flask of perfume and the hair that she had, the long hair taken down. These were the tools of her trade as a prostitute. And here's the point. This woman is making a statement that she is changing the direction of her life by using her perfume, not for lurid gain, but for pouring her perfume on Jesus' feet to honor him and worship him. She's saying, I'm changing the course of my life. She's using her perfume to wash Jesus' feet, these things that she formerly used for ungodly ways and sinful things, she says, now I have a better use for them. Because in spite of everything I've done, God has loved me and Jesus has offered me forgiveness and I am so blown away by that that I can't help but respond by dedicating all of my life and all that I have to him. This flask of perfume was probably the most expensive thing that this woman owned. By pouring it out on Jesus' feet, what she's saying is, Jesus, you aren't just one more thing in my life among many other things in my life. You are the most important thing in my life. You are the one thing I want because of what you have done for me. There's nothing else I want more than you. What Jesus is telling Simon is this. Jesus is saying, Simon, if you understood what this woman understands, then you would gush over me. You would fall at my feet. You would worship me. If you, understand, well, if you understood what she understands, you wouldn't be detached and aloof about what I'm saying, that I'm offering you forgiveness of sins, but rather that message would transform your life, Simon. If you really understood how much you need it, it would transform the way that you relate to me. It would transform the way that you relate to God. What this woman understands and what you need to understand is just how desperately she needs God's grace. See, I'll say it again. It's only when you understand the reality of your sin that you will be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. The message of the gospel is that you and I are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe, even more than we dare to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare to hope. When you really see the love of God for you and you see it shown in the price that he paid for you and you realize just how lost you would be apart from him, that is what causes you to fall at his feet like this woman did and worship him and give him the preeminence in your life and dedicate all that you are and all that you have to him. And that brings us to our third point and our second parable, which is some surprising facts about forgiveness. The second parable about the two debtors is found in Matthew chapter 18. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. I believe we'll also have it on the screen. It's similar to the first parable in the sense that there is a master who forgives some debts that the people can't pay. But in the first parable, as we saw, the the parable was about how God's forgiveness of us affects how we relate to God. This second parable 
is different in the sense that this parable is about how when God forgives us, it changes the way that we relate to other people. So let's read this parable together. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle them, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was a measurement of money, is a monetary unit, okay? And a talent, um, it's another, some of your translations might say that it was a bag of gold. It's a bag of gold that roughly weighs about 75 pounds. So 75 pounds. This guy owed 10,075 pound bags of gold. Now, here's another way of understanding what a talent was. A talent was worth about 20 years wages, 20 years wages for a laborer. So let's say, let's just estimate, a a laborer's wage might be around $30,000 a year. So multiply that by 20. So one talent is worth $600,000 according to this. And this man owes 10,000 talents. Do the math, that's $6 billion. He owes the king $6 billion. In other words, he's in deep, deep, deep over his head. This is just a ridiculous amount of money, right? There is no way he's ever going to be able to pay this back in a thousand lifetimes. So verse 25 says, Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, this might sound harsh when you read that. Oh my gosh, he had him sold as a servant? But I want you to understand this. This was actually more humane than putting someone in debtor's prison. Some of you might remember a couple um, weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, we were studying the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, we actually read in the law of Moses where this provision was made, this law was written. And here's the practice. If you get into debt, here's, here's one of the ways that you can get out of debt, is that you and everything you have can be sold, and then beyond that, whatever you owe, you and, you, and your family members, if need be, will be sold into servitude, so indentured servitude, where you will work off your debt in exchange for someone paying your debt. Now here's the thing with that, though. You might remember this from our study of Exodus. The way this indentured servitude worked is after six years, in the seventh year, no matter how much you had owed, you were set free. You see, so this is ultimately much better than going to debtor's prison. Six years of servitude in exchange for freedom. Whereas debtor's prison, you're going there for the rest of your life probably. So the king is actually being very generous with this guy, especially considering the fact that he owes $6 billion, okay? Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything back. Now there's no way he's actually going to be able to pay anything back. But out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me and I will pay you back. Does that sound familiar? That's the exact words that he used himself. But the man refused, and he went and put that man in prison until he should pay the debt, which, as we've said, there's no way he's going to be able to pay this debt back. A denarius was a day's wage for a laborer, which means that a hundred denarii 
would be about four months' wages, so about $10,000. Now, $10,000 is a significant amount of money, but it's not an impossible amount of money to pay back. And it's really nothing compared to the $6 billion debt that he had just been forgiven of. So rather than showing this man the same grace that he himself had just received, he has this guy tied up and thrown into debtor's prison, which means the guy's probably never going to be able to get out because while he's in prison, he'll have no way of ever paying back his debt. Verse 29 says this, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And when the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I want to just run through a bunch of quick bullet points for you just going to do some surprising facts about forgiveness that this parable teaches us and that the Bible teaches us regarding forgiveness. And the first one is this. Forgiveness is a big deal. In fact, we could say, according to this parable, forgiveness is a non-negotiable. So that's the first thing we learn. Forgiveness of others, if God has forgiven us, is a non-negotiable. In light of what Jesus has done for you, the massive debt that he has forgiven you, there's no excuse for me to withhold forgiveness from somebody else who has sinned against me. And we see that God takes this very seriously to the point where he says that he will withhold forgiveness from us who withhold forgiveness from our fellow man. The point of the parable is this. The more you understand the gospel, the more you understand what God has done for you in Jesus to forgive your debt and make you right with him, the more you understand that, not only will it transform your relationship with God, it will also transform your relationships with other people. I wonder how many of us in here struggle with loving messed up people. How many of us struggle with doing that? How many of us struggle with letting go of bitterness towards those who have hurt us in the past? How many of us struggle with being critical of others and finding fault in everyone and everything around us? Here's what we need to do. We have to come back to the gospel. We have to look upon the cross once again and consider the high price that Jesus paid for us and what he has forgiven us of. Consider the debt that he has forgiven you. The six billion dollars. That's you in the story, don't you see? The love and kindness that he has shown you and let that shape the way that you think about yourself and the way that you think towards other people. Let that grace and forgiveness that you have received shape the way that you relate to others. I think a lot of times, though, the reasons why we struggle to forgive people and hesitate to forgive people, I think sometimes it's because we actually have misconceptions about what forgiveness is and isn't and what it means to forgive. So I want to go through a couple things about what forgiveness isn't, and then I'll talk about what forgiveness is, and then we'll wrap it up. So the second thing that we learn here, and this is really important as to what forgiveness isn't, to forgive doesn't necessarily mean to forget. Let me explain what I'm saying. Some of you are like, wait a second. Let me explain. To forgive doesn't necessarily mean to forget. For example, notice that the king in this parable, he remembers how much he forgave the servant of. He remembers what the debt was. And he remembers what he forgave him of. Because then when he comes back, he says, okay, now you have to pay it back. But here's the point. It's very common for people to say, you know, to forgive means to forget. Which means that you act like the offense never happened. 
Like, it never, ever happened. Now, sometimes, though, that can lead to expectations which are neither healthy nor good. Let me give you an example. When I was pastoring in Hungary, there was a guy who uh, was from the U.S., and he wanted to move to our town and work with us as a missionary. Specifically, he wanted to work with youth because our church there in Hungary had a very large youth outreach. But see, this guy had just gotten out of jail. The reason he was in jail was because he had committed a sexual assault against, guess, youth, okay? In the U.S., he wasn't allowed to even be around youth. But in Hungary, those laws didn't apply. And so we told this person, I'm sorry, you cannot work with youth because of your past. And he said, hey, look, I did my time. I repented, and if my sins are forgiven and forgotten by God, then why are you making an issue out of it? And of course, our prerogative was to protect the kids, and it's just plain common sense that you don't put a person who has a history of sexual assault against kids together with a bunch of kids, right? But see, we have these Bible verses. He would say, well, what about these Bible verses? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 God says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Isaiah 43, God says that he will blot out our transgressions and remember them no more. So wouldn't you say that isn't not remembering something the same as forgetting something? Actually, it's not. That's actually two different things. Let me explain. When the Bible talks about God remembering something or not remembering something, it doesn't mean that he forgot that it happened and then remembered it. Like, I can't remember where I put my keys, I forgot right? What it means is that God, when God remembers something, it means that he focuses his attention on someone or something in a, in a certain time. For example, throughout the Old Testament, over and over, it says that God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Joseph. God remembered his covenant that he had made with Israel. It's not saying that God forgot those things and he was like, oh yeah, Joseph, I totally forgot about that guy. Good thing I remembered. Thanks for reminding me. No, it means that in that moment, God turned his focus and his attention to those people or that thing. So when it it says that God remembers our sin no more, it doesn't mean that he had erased them from his memory. What it means is that he will no longer, he will never focus on that again. He will never hold those things over your head or throw them in your face. He will never hold them against you again. That's what it means. So so many people struggle with forgiving others because they've been given this misconception that forgiving means that they have to forget. And they say, I just can't forget. I don't know how. The thing that happened to me, I just can't erase that from my memory. It was such a traumatic thing maybe. You know, maybe there's some of you, you've experienced things that you can't just forget. Please understand that just because you can't forget something doesn't mean that you can't forgive that person. Second thing here that I want to say about what forgiveness isn't, forgiveness and trust are two separate things. That's really important. Forgiveness and trust are two separate things. Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15 says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. A lot of people confuse forgiveness and trust. See, forgiveness is something that you give, and trust is something that has to be earned. If trust is broken, it's probably gonna take some time to earn it back. Sometimes people don't get that, and they, they expect that someone who says that they've forgiven them will automatically trust them again just as they did before. Or on the other hand, some people expect that, okay, well, if I forgive someone, I can't forgive that person because that'll mean that I have to trust them again. No, understand, those are two separate things. So what is forgiveness? I'll give you a couple points. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not seeking your own revenge. 
not seeking your own revenge. It means no longer holding on to that thing that happened to you, but giving it over to God and saying, God, this is for you to worry about and deal with. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't seek justice, especially if it's a legal matter. Sometimes that's, that's appropriate and right and, and actually the best thing you can do given the situation. But it means that you don't seek revenge, even if you're seeking justice, that you're not vindictive. You're not trying to hurt that person back because they hurt you. Forgiveness also means not being consumed by the past. You know, some people are hesitant to forgive because they feel like if they forgive someone who hurt them and they let it go, then that person's getting off scot-free. They got away with what they did and by forgiving him, somehow they're saying that what that person did was okay. I want you to understand that forgiveness isn't about exonerating the wrongdoer. It's not about saying that what they did is okay. It's not about trivializing what happened. It's about you letting go of that thing and not letting it consume your life. Recently, I was talking to someone and she was telling me about her life growing up and how she had a really difficult childhood. And a big part of the difficulty of her childhood was her mom. Her mom had some addictions and some very unhealthy relationships and those things affected her in a very negative way. And for many years, she told me she was angry at her mom, and she didn't talk to her for many years. But at one point in her life, this woman became a Christian, and she embraced the gospel, and she understood that Jesus had forgiven her and forgiven all of her sins. And she was so changed by that and affected by that that she decided, it's not okay for me to not forgive my mom for what happened in the past. So she wrote a letter, even though her mom had never apologized for the things that she had done, she wrote her mom a letter and told her, Mom, I became a Christian, and I've been forgiven, and I, I want you to know that I forgive you for everything that happened in the past. And in doing that, she also wrote and she apologized for the things that she had done to hurt her mom. And a little while later, her and her mom met face to face for the first time in many years. And her mom told her, her mom actually apologized and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for all the things that I did that hurt you when you were growing up. And this woman said, she told her mom, but mom, I already told you, I already forgave you. And her mom said, I know you forgave me. That's how I had the courage to say I'm sorry. You see, what this parable teaches us is that forgiving others is simply giving them what God has given you. When you know that God has already done everything to forgive you in Christ, it gives you the courage to completely be honest about who you are and it gives you the strength to forgive others. You see, when we look at these two parables, what they teach us is this, that what we need to consider more than anything else is the depth of the love of God shown for us in the price that he paid so that our sins could be forgiven. If we can only begin to wrap our minds around that, if we can only begin to wrap our minds around what God did for us in Christ to save us at such a great cost because that's how much he loves us, when you begin to wrap your mind around that, it will transform the way that you relate to God and it will transform the way that you relate to others. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, as we consider these things, Lord, I pray that truly you would help us to comprehend Lord, the, the depth of our lostness apart from you, the depth of our need for your forgiveness, and Lord, the height of your love for us shown in the price that you paid in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your life for us. Lord, may we respond like that woman, understanding just how much we need your grace that causes us to go to our knees and gush over you and worship you. 
Lord, I pray that would be true of all of us as we leave this place today, that we would be overcome and overwhelmed by your love for us. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.